1: Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners. This week, we're going to be talking about how to achieve a happier, healthier, and more resilient workforce. We have on our podcast this week, Dr. Richard Safir. This is someone that For the past 20 years, has been a workplace health pioneer and thought leader. He's assessed cultures, trained leaders, conducted research on the intersection of individual and organizational behavior. He currently serves as the chief medical director of employee health and being for Johns Hopkins Medicine. He's a regular speaker on building a culture of health and well-being. He's published numerous journal articles on the topic. He has a new book out. It's entitled A Cure for the Common Company and it's a book that you absolutely must check out. It integrates the science with practical solutions as demonstrated by numerous real stories from successful companies that are out there doing this work and transforming their culture. I personally really appreciate what Rich brings to the conversation of employee health. I mean, his strategies and decisions are based on science and his commitments driven by heart. And I couldn't agree more with his work on making it easier for everyone to make healthy choices by shaping cultures that support health and well-being. And Rich Safir is someone that has two decades of practicing medicine. He's been a clinical scholar. He's a faculty member. He's been leading a, a crusade in terms of employee health promotion and he's worked with some of the top health systems in the world. And I'm so excited to, to have Dr. Richard Safir on our show this week. So now let's go ahead and hear from him as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Hello, Rich. Welcome to the Race to Value. It is so great to have you on the show this week. Thanks for
0: having me, Eric. I'm excited to be here.
1: I couldn't be more excited to have you on the show. You really have a unique perspective that's gleaned from two decades as a practicing physician, clinical scholar, faculty member. You're really focused on employee wellness and your new book, A Cure for the Common Company, A Well-Being Prescription for a Happy, Healthier, and More Resilient Workforce, comes highly touted. I'm really excited to have this discussion with you. And I thought as we start our conversation today, our listenership is comprised of leading innovators and clinicians and executives in the value-based care movement. They're really focused on lifestyle medicine and population health, and we're going to be talking specifically about employee populations, and I wanted to see if you could maybe tie the threads together. Why should those in leadership positions in healthcare be focused on these important populations as a springboard for everything else that they're doing in the healthcare arena?
0: Thanks, Eric. I have been very fortunate to see healthcare from a variety of different angles, starting as a practicing family doctor, getting involved with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine before it was actually a college, serving uh, in academic medicine, running an occupational health office, working for a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, and now leading the employee health and well-being strategy at Johns Hopkins Medicine. So I really feel privileged to have this pretty holistic view, and I'm concerned that not every uh, person uh, has been able to get that 360 view, and I think we all have an opportunity to extend our impact when we look at individuals not only as patients, but also as employees, and understand that we spend most of our waking hours during the workday so that until we integrate a strategy that includes the workplace, uh, we're not likely to optimize our own health, yet alone those we serve.
1: Well, Rich, that's it's a great way to think about this. In population health, we have to be multifaceted in how we think about caring for others. And that certainly includes those that are in our workforce. And I, I think it goes unsaid, but happy, engaged, resilient, productive, and workforce provides better patient outcomes. But let's talk about just the state of the industry right now when it comes to employers. And they're spending upwards of $880 billion on premium dollars annually. They're getting fleeced by these unsustainable double-digit premium increases every year. I often hear from my colleagues that employers are the sleeping giants in the health value movement because they're no longer going to tolerate status quo with a fee-for-service model. So there's an economic aspect to this where they're spending upwards of $14,000 per employee, but there's also this very important aspect of just health and being that is so crucial to creating a optimal culture within a company and we see risk factors and chronic diseases such as high blood pressure and diabetes smoking physical inact inactivity and obesity running rampant in our society and that is obviously very pervasive in the workforce as well and you know research indicates that less than 5% of americans are sufficiently active and eat a healthy diet and maintain a healthy weight and abstain from smoking. And what I love about your work is that you have this way of creating goals and creating a culture where those people in leadership and companies, they're thinking about employee wellness programs in ways to really create a more viable, sustainable company, but also societal health in in, in the process. And as I look back and my understanding is that Organizational employee wellness programs have only been partially successful, and it's so complicated in terms of changing behavior and and you have to have that right supportive environment. So I thought uh, as we get into our conversation, I wanted to ask you if you could provide some more insight into the perceived failure of corporate wellness programs over the last few decades and of the ones that succeed in promoting healthier lifestyles, what are the shared attributes between them?
0: Sure. So I do want to. Just make sure our, our um, audience understands that my work spans the spectrum of health from well being to chronic disease. And I think that is one opportunity for other employers to embrace that the two should not be disconnected. And when companies and organizations view health as a spectrum and integrate their resources, they're more likely to succeed. Now, your immediate question, why do I think some previous attempts at, let's call it workplace wellness, have failed is because I think that the the view uh, has been too limited. Let's face it, humans are complicated and the solutions that have been offered are too simple. We... (laughs) We as individuals are influenced by the people we work with, the people we live with, the people we know in the community. We as individuals are influenced by the cues around us, whether it's in the workplace, in the home, or in the community. And so we really need a much more holistic attempt at supporting our well-being if we have any hope of doing better. The failure is mostly because of the simple thinking and abdicating the strategy to a third party and not taking responsibility as an employer themselves. Now, the successes are really just on the opposite of what I just said, the the successes understand that our health and being are greatly influenced by the relationships that we have in the workplace, such as our peers, such as with our manager. Our well-being, which impacts our health, is greatly influenced by the trust, the positive emotions that are emitted in the workplace, by the actual job itself and whether or not we enjoy our work. There's a lot of social sciences, Eric, that most employers have not um, fully leveraged to optimize their support for their workforce.
1: Well, Rich, as we think about creating the right culture for a workforce and the programmatic interventions that need to take place, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the actual financial structure to which healthcare is offered to employees. It seems to me that a requisite component of a corporate wellness strategy is a well-tooled and innovative self-insured health insurance plan because then the employer can shape the health of employees and offer a unique and tailored approach to healthcare coverage. And unlike traditional models, these self-insured plans allow the companies to assume the financial risk of their employees' medical expenses and that provides them greater flexibility in designing wellness programs that align with the organizational goals. And the approach also empowers the employers to take a proactive stance in promoting health and implementing preventive measures, fostering a culture of well-being. And they have this ability to customize the benefits and wellness initiatives. And through that, they can address specific health needs, encourage healthy behaviors, and really provide that comprehensive support for their employees. So I'm thinking about the creation of this well-crafted, self-insured plan and how that's coupled with a robust wellness program and a culture. And then that could really be a catalyst for enhanced morale, productivity, overall job satisfaction, really recreating a a better workforce environment and ultimately more production and, and a better bottom line when it's all said and done. We had a podcast a couple of years ago with... Harris Rosen, he's the founder of Rosen Hotels, and yeah, he talked about what they did in terms of the employee wellness and retention and how they were able to leverage their self-insured plan and save, I think, $450 million over a decade. So I wanted to ask you just, how, do we, how should we think about this important convergence between corporate wellness and self-insured health plans? Is it necessary to have a, an a innovative self-insured offering, or is a culture of well-being enough in and of itself?
0: Before we lose uh, some of the listeners who are interested in small and mid-sized businesses, let me just say that there is a financial reason for all companies of all sizes to be engaged in this area of supporting employee health and well-being. So putting aside who pays the healthcare bill, just recognize that a healthy workforce is much more engaged with their work. Therefore, they're better able to do high-quality work. They're better able to solve solutions. They're more likely to stay with their job. It's going to be easier to attract new talent because the company gains a reputation of being a good place to work for. There's fewer workers' compensation injuries. The list goes on and on. Stay tuned, everybody. (laughs) Now, turning to a model that everyone can embrace and larger companies who are self-insured can take more direct advantage of the financial savings, we do need to be more creative about how we support the health and well-being of our employees. And it needs to be more than a wellness portal or app as a benefit. So take, for example, access to primary care. Not only is there a shortage of numbers of primary care doctors, but more of them are turning toward concierge practice because of their of their perceived burden of working with insurers. And so there are a lot of employers who are facing this challenge and there's direct to primary care models that I think provide a great opportunity for companies to not only improve access for their employees but also to allow more time for clinicians and employees to have meaningful exchanges it's not enough to get into the doctor's office you don't want to have be rushed out 10 minutes later I think that direct primary care is a model I'm hopeful for in the future, and I think that's a great model to administer lifestyle medicine. I'm also hopeful for on site or near site clinics uh, as a growing opportunity. Again, that also can be supportive of more active lifestyle medicine. Eric, the complexity of the possibilities is such that it warrants um, more than this one question and answer.
1: I definitely think uh, you're you're right on that. And this is such a big, hairy, audacious goal that we have to transform the culture of, of companies in our country and, and create health and wellness. And there's so many countervailing influences in society. And then, of course, you have to take into consideration that 80% of a person's Health and well-being lies outside of the healthcare delivery system in and of itself, those social determinants of health. and But we spend so much of our time working, and it probably more in the United States. The workforce culture it has such an impact on health, and that's what I, I love about your thinking on this. And I, I can tell you're someone that is dedicated with the highest level of passion and commitment to create being in, in companies and providing the consultative expertise, and I've heard you in public speaking, and I'm really impressed by your approach. and And in your new book, "A Cure for the Common Company," you offer these practical steps for putting each well-being culture block in place, avoiding the things that can derail efforts. And you also provide specific ways to make sure that your plan is working. So I wanted to ask you, Rich, if you could. Walk us through the building blocks of a well being culture.
0: Sure. But Eric, let me, if you don't mind, just allow our listeners to get a broad picture of the resources that most companies or many companies make available to their employees that your listeners might want to keep in mind as they do their work. So, many companies or most companies, they offer health insurance and Where possible, it's important to understand the data that the insurers have to offer. It's both the cost of specific diseases as well as the prevalence or the number of people who have that. That alone can help focus your energy. You can't boil the ocean. You also want to consider whether the company has an employee assistance program What do they do for their occupational health services? Because when an employee comes into an organization, they should be starting the whole idea around health being should be starting at the interview and should be readdressed when people have occupational health needs. There's also an opportunity to collaborate with the local healthcare organizations who are providing resources in the community. Erica, just before I go into these building blocks, I really just wanted to ask our listeners to think broadly because you wanna take advantage of your colleagues and resources that are probably already available. Now, a culture in the workplace doesn't happen with the snap of the fingers. It doesn't happen overnight. And we hear this idea of well-being culture a lot But they're really before I wrote the book. I really understood that. Hey, no one's got this framework out. There's no how-to, so let me provide one. And there's six building blocks, as you mentioned. If you want to memorize them, that's fine. I'll give you uh, a way to do that. But obviously, you can find that information when you Google me later. Plan for success. Those three words and the six building blocks are embedded in that phrase, plan for success. The P in plan stands for peer support. That is the first building block. How our peers, our colleagues, our family members, our friends in the community impact our physical, mental and social health. L in plan is for leadership and our managers all the way up to the head of the company or organization also play a role in our health and well-being. The N in plan is for norms. Norms are the expected behavior of a group of people. And in the workplace, there are team norms and there are company-wide norms. And these are very powerful forces that influence our mental health, influence our choices throughout the day, etc. Skip that little short word for and go to success the essence success is for shared values so that's our fourth building block companies and organizations have values those are the uh, rules or guidelines at which companies make decisions and how they do business and when companies choose to include employee health or employee well-being or some variation of that they're much more likely to follow through and consider how the work is impacting the health and well-being of the workforce. Very important. The two C's in success stand for culture connection points, fifth building block. These are the nudges, the influences, that shape our day-to-day choices and emotions. Eric, there's 11 or 12 of these. I'll just give you an example. When you walk up to a vending machine and you see a green leaf in front of one of the choices and that stands for healthy choice you make it very easy for the employee to know hey you know what i am trying to eat healthy this makes it easier to pick one of the ones that is identified and then the last of the six building blocks is social climate social climate is the way we feel about the people, the team we work with, and the organization we work with. Some people liken it to employee morale. And social climate is influenced by how connected we feel. Do we feel part of the team? And are we working in a positive environment, or is there always a cloud cast over us? And whether or not we share goals uh, with the rest of the team. So, I just gave a huge mouthful, Eric, and listeners may end up uh, going backward a little bit and jotting it down again, but um,
1: it's all spelled
0: out uh, and we can share some resources at the end.
1: I appreciate your willingness to share resources and just your thought leadership on this is so important. And I can't think of a more critical time in the healthcare industry right now. And of course, we're talking in a very general sense in terms of companies and the workforce, but our listeners out there, the majority of them are leading health systems and physician practices. And there's this plight of healthcare burnout and moral injury right now. There was a, a survey earlier this year, Rich, by the American American College of Healthcare executives, and they surveyed all these hospital CEOs of their top concerns, and workforce issues was ranked number one. And it was the first time in 16 years that financial challenges weren't on the top of the list. And of course, the workforce and finance is inextricably linked. But there's many that are are very concerned about these personnel shortages, uh, declining retention, staff burnout. We have many nurses that are coming out of COVID saying that experience was like psychological warfare. Their mental well-being is, has been deteriorated. Look at physicians. Like 15% of them struggle with depression. 20% have reported having suicidal thoughts it's been projected that by a Harvard report, they said that burnout is a public health crisis and urgently demands action. So I wanted to ask you how a health and wellness culture can help those in the healthcare field deal with burnout and moral injury. And, and also, I'd love to get your opinion on resiliency in, in in the healthcare workforce, I think many might take offense to being told to suck it up, do your job, and you know, w- what's the artful way to foster resiliency without sounding too uh, paternalistic in the process?
0: Yeah, you notice that when I talked about those six building blocks, they weren't like nutrition and sleep and exercise. Those are all important habits, but most people know what they need to work on for their health, and they don't need to be told, hey, you need to sleep seven to nine hours. Most of us know that already. What we really need is a supportive work environment. A supportive home and community would be helpful too, but for my sphere of influence, it's the workplace. And so the building blocks are really more about creating the opportunity for whatever that individual is working toward. Now, yeah, burnout is an issue. Resiliency is an issue. I don't know who's still saying, suck it up. That person's probably going to be out of a job if they're not already, because I think that most healthcare leaders know that this is no longer acceptable. And, And employees are voting with their feet. Eric, there are uh, too few healthcare workers for the current needs across the United States and probably other parts of the world. So those employers who are able to demonstrate a genuine care and back it up with the genuine resources and strategy to support the health and well-being of their workforce will be the ones who attract and retain talent. Now, When it comes to resiliency, there are a variety of issues that uh, contribute to an individual's ability to be resilient. But first, we have to understand it should not rest solely on the individual. The organization plays a role in the ability for an individual to be resilient. Let's face it, if you're a nurse or a doctor, By definition, you're already resilient. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made it through your education and training. It's a matter though of whether or not and how long you can swim upstream. Eric, if you threw me into a pool and asked me to tread water for five minutes, I'm pretty sure I could do it. If you told me to tread water for eight hours, I'm not so sure. And so why is it that employers should expect their workforce to be able to maintain their mental health if every day they're faced with unsustainable amounts of work and the type of work they're doing doesn't align with their education and skill set? So I won't go further on the employer's responsibilities, but I just want to make sure we don't lose that. Now, when it comes to resiliency for an individual, yeah, some of it is about our own skill set, our own habits. Can we come to work rested? Can we be mindful and, and stay in the present so that we don't allow uh, the stress of looking f- into the future wear us down? But our so called individual resiliency also relies on the people who are closest to us. Did you know that when we feel socially connected to the people on our team, that improves our resiliency? Did you know that when we feel trusted by our team and by our manager, that improves our resiliency? When people feel cared for by their boss, that improves our resiliency. And it doesn't take much it takes us being human, it takes us being vulnerable, showing some more intimate details of who we are as individuals to help forge bonds. I don't wanna cast aside the importance of a healthy diet and exercise, not smoking, not drinking, et cetera. These all add up, except that I focused on those elements that most organizations are not thinking about which really could help tremendously.
1: Well, Rich, as you were talking, a couple of things came to mind and wanted to ask you about. First, in terms of the mental health of employees, it's of paramount importance. You and I both agree on that. The stats are irrefutable. There was a statistic that I saw just recently, 70% of employees would actually take a pay cut for a job that better supports their mental health and well-being. And you talked about social connection that promotes resiliency and the need for us to, as leaders, to be human and vulnerable and forge those bonds. And I'm just thinking of all this in the context of maybe a changing work dynamic. And obviously on the in the front lines of care delivery, you can't work remotely, but a lot of organizations now are. Are moving into remote and hybrid models. They're thinking about how to foster a supportive culture that prioritizes mental health and takes into consideration all the things that you said. But obviously there's something that that has to give in terms of maybe remote work and having that social connection. And I just wanted to ask you maybe in terms of the overall shifting landscape and the, the employer community, what should leaders be thinking about in terms of creating the idealized culture for their own company that works for them, that really prioritizes the mental health and well-being of their employee population?
0: Yeah, I think uh, that statistic about 70% of employees being willing to take a pay cut to get a job that better supports their mental health comes from a study that UKG did about a year ago. And interestingly enough, Eric, the number is even higher when they asked just managers that same question. And so that lesson there is that if you're a a leader or someone who influences decisions, don't forget about the middle management because without good middle management, the chances of having a healthy and well frontline are really limited. So you mentioned it, most healthcare workers need to Uh, be on site to deliver care. And yet there are a portion of the, there is a portion of the workforce that could be remote or hybrid, which in some ways comes as a benefit, but poses its own risk. The risk being that uh, when we don't feel connected, which when we're working remotely, that increases the chance that we don't feel connected. That's not good for our well-being. It increases the risk of us getting lonely, which is a risk factor for depression, obesity, heart disease, stroke, decreased immune system. It's awful to be lonely. People don't talk about it. I guess it's getting some press lately, but um, needless to say, it's not a slam dunk to make decisions about remote work or hybrid work. And so You asked about how do employers make this decision about building their culture in the context of these opportunities to to work in different settings. A uh, book was recently released by a couple of neuroscientists from Gallup, Jim Harder and Jim Clifton, I believe. And I believe it was called Culture Shock. And one of their conclusions is that now, of course, you have to consider the job responsibilities. You're not going to be doing surgery from home. Putting aside the obvious job responsibilities that need to be done in a healthcare facility, teams need to make group decisions about their um, work location, their work hours, the flexibility, etc., I don't think that it's a good idea for companies to make a one-size-fits-all decision about these sometimes very personal needs for work-life balance, or some people call it work-life harmony. Now, Eric, I hope you don't think that's a cop-out to the question that you asked. In fact, I think it's going to force our listeners to just pause and think about how is it that we can support team leaders to have those conversations. And we're doing just that at Johns Hopkins Medicine. We have been looking at data around work-life balance and this idea about remote work and hybrid work, and it it is tricky and it's worth our time and attention.
1: Well, Rich, I really appreciate your perspective there. And thanks for sharing the results and the work that you're doing there at Johns Hopkins. And as I'm thinking about this evolving landscape and the employer ecosystem, There, we certainly can't have a cookie cutter approach. Every respective company is different. They have unique needs and preferences in terms of taking care of their workforce. But I was hoping you could share maybe a few employer exemplars out there in workforce health and being that may be helpful for our listeners to learn more about.
0: Cisco Systems has certainly shown that they have embraced most, if not all, of the being culture building blocks. When you get a workplace culture to a point where people feel comfortable speaking their piece and taking the initiative to create their own well-being strategies, then you know that your well-being culture has become mostly self-sustaining. And that's really what you want. You can't rely on a health and well-being team to do all the work. You need everybody involved. You need everybody to play a role and not only supporting their own health and being, but those people on their team and seeking out other employees across the organization who have similar health and being needs. And I guess what came to mind when you asked the question, an employee who was coming back to work after having a new baby and realized that she was having some challenges uh, with the idea of nursing her baby during the workday and being back in the office. And so she founded an employee resource group based on new moms. And I, I think it's great that Cisco created a culture where she felt comfortable stepping forward in order to take the initiative and move forward and and then get the support she needed to make her plan come to fruition
1: that's a, a great example. And Rich, I was thinking just in terms of creating this culture, we also have to harness the full potential of technology and the application of technology has to be very purposeful. And I, I think we've seen examples where, you know, we, you might have an employer that pr- provides a Fitbit to an employee and gives them reward uh, points and they end up putting it on the dog so they can get credit for steps. And there's all these stories out there, but it but also there. There, there is a place for technology in, in terms of wellness apps and wearable devices and online health platforms and telehealth services and things like that. Leveraging those solutions is a really effective way to create more engagement and attract progress. So I wanted to just ask you just in terms of how leaders should be thinking about technology solutions and making sure that they're applied in the right way to elicit the behavior change that they're seeking in their employee population.
0: Yeah, Eric, I mean, there is a role for technology, but I think more often than not, leaders abdicate to their strategy to technology. And I think that's a mistake. Our health and being is primarily influenced by our workplace, our home, and our community, and the people and the norms and the influences that we're exposed to every day. And I don't think an app is going to make or break an individual. And while I'm not opposed to incentive plans, I don't think most of them are, are used well. And I do think leaders um, rely on them too much. That being said, I do think technology can be leveraged to help foster a community. So helping individual employees find other employees who have similar health and wellness needs. Uh, Technology certainly can serve as a communication platform to foster groups of people collectively engaging in healthy activities. Certainly, it can be used for tracking. I also think there's a role for technology to help us gather data which informs our business decisions. And we want individuals' opinions. We also want self-reported information. And maybe there's a limited role for biometrics. There's another caution. Employers who are still relying on too much biometrics to make their strategy on their strategy, I think employers have understood the perils with that. But there might be a small role for that.
1: Oh, it's very helpful, Rich. And I obviously, I wanted to ask you about lifestyle medicine too. We've had quite a few guests on the podcast throughout the last few years that have been experts in this field. And it's exciting in terms of the the opportunity there is with this inter- intersection with value-based payment, advanced primary care, lifestyle medicine, somehow orchestrating a way to create the catalyst to address those more holistic ways of creating interventions within populations to address poor nutrition and physical inactivity and chronic stress and self-destructive behaviors and things like that. I wanted to just ask you just in terms of uh, ways that employers can maybe create a culture, not specifically through their health plan, even though that's great through lifestyle medicine, but maybe within the culture of the company itself. Every time I walk into a break room, I see cakes and cookies and donuts and and obviously, leaders have a role to play in exemplifying the ideal health for those that they're leading. So, I just wanted to get your take on just how companies should be thinking about this.
0: Sure. For your listeners' understanding, I got a degree in nutrition before going to medical school. I was involved with the American College of Lifestyle early. Um, I attended the first ACLM meeting. Um, I actually don't even know if we were. <laughs> an ACLM like taking dues yet uh, at the time. And uh, I served on the board of directors at at one point. So I, I fully embrace the potential that lifestyle medicine offers, including having used lifestyle medicine in my own practice. So in my role at Hopkins, we do offer a longitudinal lifestyle medicine program focused around the theme of lowering blood pressure, knowing full well That by participants completing the nine week program, they would not just be lowering their blood pressure, but getting all the other health benefits that come with embracing the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. And our success is not resting only on our 18 session, nine week longitudinal program. We integrate our larger employee health and well-being strategy into our lifestyle medicine program so that the participants can really leverage the resources, events, et cetera, that are simultaneously all around them during the workday. For example, we have a nutrition policy, Eric, at Hopkins, and our employees and particularly the participants in our lifestyle medicine program are informed if they didn't realize already about how our green leaf symbol depicts low sodium foods in our cafeterias and vending machines we integrate current exercise or movement strategies into our lifestyle medicine program we encourage participants to sign up with a coworker or find a coworker on that first session to pair up so that they have peer support, one of the six well-being building blocks to increase the likelihood that they are successful. Eric, the list goes on and on. I truly believe that lifestyle medicine can reap benefits for many. but I also know the reality is that many can make changes for eight, 10, 12 weeks, but to be able to sustain those, takes a little bit more thought into how we go about our day-to-day interactions. And that means addressing
1: it in the workplace. And I think we've done a good job of that at Hopkins. It sounds like it. And as I'm thinking about Creating this sustainable change, there obviously is an important aspect of the workforce culture. We talked about how crucial that is and how much time each employee spends in in the workforce throughout their lives. But as we're talking right now, this episode is right before a new year, and that's often a time where people personally and individually reflect on their own uh, habits and are thinking about ways to weave healthy habits into the fabric of their life and as we're thinking about creating these small consistent actions that are cumulative over time in terms of improving a person's overall health and being do you have maybe one or two takeaways that you can share with our listeners as they're looking to formulate their new year's resolutions and stick to it for sustainable change
0: it's funny eric that you bring up new year's resolutions because in many of my presentations now and in January, I, one of my last slides is about New Year's resolutions, and too often, individuals don't consider work, their workplace or their job when they're figuring out how they're going to achieve their New Year's resolution. And the book I wrote, A Cure for the Common Company, is certainly to help you support the health and well-being of others on your team or even an entire organization, depending on your role. But in every chapter of the building blocks, there's a a call out box called, put your own mask on first. Literally because we need to be well if we're going to optimize the support that we can lend others. And I, I just mentioned one that we integrated into our nine week longitudinal lifestyle medicine program. And that is about Signing up with someone or finding a colleague in the early sessions of the program. For your listeners, if you're about to make a New Year's resolution, who are you going to work with when you do this? Is there somebody else who's trying to achieve the same habit or get rid of the same unhealthy habit? And if not, is there someone who you can rely on to be there to support you? And not just someone at home. But someone in the workplace where you're spending most of your waking hours.
1: That's well said, Rich. And uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us this week on the podcast. I've learned so much about your prescription for well-being and and just the importance of the workforce. And you know, clearly as leaders, we have to get better at creating the optimal environment to improve the population health of those that are in the service of serving a company's customer base and ultimately providing a better society. As we wrap up today, could you provide our listeners with ways that they could stay connected to your thought leadership? And I'd I'd love for you to share any information on ways that people can find more about this important work that you're doing.
0: Thank you, Eric. I am active on LinkedIn I also have a website, richardsafier.com, S-A-F-E-E-R, where there's blogs, videos, etc., cetera, where you can learn more. Of course, I hope you'll take a look at A Cure for the Common Company. If you go to Amazon, you could read the intro and half the first chapter and the read sample button. Eric, this is the culmination of my life's work. I think all your listeners are doing great work and they want to make a contribution. And I hope they'll take a little more time to understand the possibilities that they might not yet be incorporating into their strategy.
1: Thank you for sharing that information, Rich. And I appreciate your time today and sharing your insights with our listeners this week on the Race to Value.
0: Thank you so much, Eric, for getting the word out.